Thank you so much. Um, I just want to say, first of all, what a privilege it is to be here with you all. Um, I first got the call asking if I would consider coming and sharing with you on, on your Sermon on the Mount series. And I was a little bit surprised, uh, especially now hearing that you hardly ever have a guest speaker. So feeling the weight, feeling the weight. I can't, I can't deny that. Um, and before I, before I say anything else, I know I'm not supposed to embarrass anybody uh, from the stage. So I won't name any names, but any of your mom and dad say hello. And so just want to share that with you. Um, but yeah, I was really surprised. Uh, part of me wanted to ask if they thought they had the right person, because do they know that I'm a counselor and, and not just a, your average preacher person? And uh, I'm a, as a licensed mental health counselor, I have to practice the 80%, 20% rule. Any, do any of you know what that is, the 80%, 20% rule? It means that for 80% of the time, I'm supposed to listen, and 20% of the time, I'm, I'm supposed to talk. So for the next 20 minutes, I'm just going to stand here. I, I'm, I'm good with awkwardness, awkward quiet. I'm good with that. So I'm just going to... This is your time. I want to hear from you. Just kidding. Actually, my wife's sitting down there to say, no, he has plenty to say most of the time. So let me introduce myself and my family real quick. I grew up as a missionary kid in Kenya, Africa, and I went to a boarding school, Rift Valley Academy. I met my wife, Kimberly, in college at Asbury University, and then we served together with our, our children for 11 years as missionaries in Nepal doing urban ministry among the most vulnerable of the poor. It was in Nepal where three of my four kids were born, and we moved back to the U.S. in 2008 to Omaha, Nebraska, where I got my master's degree and began counseling while serving as a pastor at the Antioch Church plant in Omaha, Nebraska. And then in uh, 2017, we moved to, to Waco, Texas, where I, I joined the staff of Antioch Waco. So Kimberly was on the staff at, uh, at Waco for, in the kids' ministry department for several years, and she just just started. Uh, yeah, in, in Antioch Kids, she was the operations director, manager, operations manager, sorry. Yeah, she's so humble. Um, she was the operations manager that directed a lot of things. Uh, so she just started a new job at a, as an elementary school teacher in an underserved school district in Waco area, and I'm super proud of her and the difference that she makes in kids' lives every day. I'm blessed to be the father of four really amazing kids. I think we have a picture of my, my family. My oldest son, Jedediah, who's here with me. He's a Baylor, a Baylor student, at right. junior at Baylor University. It's all right. Oh, ooh. Okay. Um, Adia, my, my second born, is a sophomore at Creighton University. And hopefully she's watching this morning from Omaha, Nebraska. Elijah is a, a senior in high school, and Priya is a sophomore in high school. So that's my, that's my family. I'm really proud of them. I currently serve at Antioch Ministry International, AMI, as, uh, as the director, this is a long title, director of mental health and counseling, and then I also am the owner-operator of West Counseling, which is my private practice. So that's me in a nutshell. And you've been in this series. I'm going to jump right in. You've been in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I've always been fascinated with this, this sermon of Jesus. I was excited to be given the opportunity to be part of the, the series with you, and I was specifically given the portion of Matthew uh, 25, or Matthew chapter 6, the, the end portion. And so this, these verses 25 through 34, uh, they, they talk about anxiety. And I think that's probably why they thought, well, we don't know how to handle this passage. So we're going to bring in a mental health counselor, throw him under the bus. If he doesn't do a good job, well, he was just a counselor. He wasn't a preacher anyway. But in all seriousness, as I dug into this passage, it almost felt like God was setting us all up for failure. You know, you start to look at the whole Sermon on the Mount, 
and you, st- you see things in it. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it, it starts, Jesus starts the sermon with a list of state- statements that basically says, you're blessed when you embrace every value that our culture and society rejects. Yeah. Weakness, grief, poverty, kindness, honestly, nonviolence. Your lives should look like all the things that, you, that will not help you to be popular. Then Jesus says, you're the light of the world, so no pressure, but everyone's watching you. <laughs> all the things you do, you're up on this hill, don't screw it up for us. And then he walks us through this list of sinful actions. He says, hey, don't just not kill people and don't, don't just not sleep around, but I don't even want you to think about those things. Don't even let those thoughts enter your mind. I mean, reading these things, if it doesn't produce some kind of anxiety in us, right? A little, yeah. <laughs> it should. It should. I, if I hold anger in my heart towards somebody, it's as if I've murdered him. Are you kidding me? Don't even have a lustful thought, really? Then commands us to be perfect like God is perfect. Whoa. Who can possibly live up to these expectations? And then this, oh yeah, by the way, don't be anxious about your life. It's all gonna be okay. Don't be anxious. I mean, did you just read the rest of this? Did you, were you listening, Jesus? You know, Jesus, do you know what goes through my mind each day? Oh, you do, that's right, you're omniscient. That just makes me feel even more nervous. You can read my thoughts. Well, that's definitely one way to read the Sermon on the Mount. And based on what people say to me about the things that they feel anxious about, when, when they come into my office and share with me their anxiety, it must be a pretty common understanding of who God is, that, that he, what he expects from his people. I, I don't know about your experience, but in my counseling practice, there are a lot of people who desperately want to be faithful and obedient followers of Jesus, but they don't find the place where they're confronted by God's expectations to be a safe place. For many of us, it's a place of feelings of failure and shame. And it's fraught with feelings of obligation and the weight of it feels impossible. And so it's a place of anxiety and it's a place of hopelessness. And if any of you have ever been in those two places, anxiety and hopelessness, when they come crashing together, it's a horrible place to be. I'm not even talking about people who aren't really following Jesus, who are living according to the world. I'm talking, most of the people who I see actually are are missionaries, professional followers of Jesus, if you will. People who are hardwired to do the right thing and to do it to the best of their abilities. They're reading things like the Sermon on the Mount and they're feeling overwhelmed by the expectations of God to be perfect like he is. And they don't feel safe. And then they come to today's passage and it tells them, in addition to all of this, don't be anxious, and they feel like one more layer of failure and shame is added on top of everything else. If any of you are feeling that way, then uh, this, this message might be for you. Let me tell you today, this would be a wrong interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't hear anything else I say, remember this, the Sermon on the Mount is not intended to give us an impossible standard to live up to and then set us up for failure. It's intended to reveal a God who shatters our expectations of being an exacting, legalistic, demanding God, and then who invites us to shape our life's values according to his character. So let's read the passage together and look at it from two different perspectives. First, from the perspective of who Jesus' original audience was and what they needed to understand from it. 
And then from the perspective of what principles we should draw from this passage for our lives today, 2,000 years later. So Matthew 6, 25 through 34, I'm going to read it from the ESV. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Sounds really good, and it is. Let me give you a little context for this passage. The Sermon on the Mount is a special teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples. It was a little bit like a spontaneous leadership retreat. When Matthew says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and sat down. And when his disciples sat with him, he began to teach them. This wasn't a message he was just sharing in general with all of the crowd of people following around Galilee. It was an instructional time for those that he was preparing to send out into ministry. So I have a mug at home that my wife Kimberly gave me. Do we have a, a picture of my mug? I'm wondering if it's there, because uh, is, it, is, it, is that picture up there? If it's not there, it says, I'll, I'll just tell you what the mug says. It says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> uh, she, gave me, she gave me that mug, she gave me that mug because uh, she knows how irritated I get when we take scripture out of context and try to apply it to our lives incorrectly, especially when we try to shape scripture to fit our experience or our agenda, instead of letting scripture inform our experience and determine our agenda. So the context here is really important for us to get. And uh, if we want to really engage with this passage, we need to first of all see that Matthew chapter 6 wasn't written to any one of us. It was written to first century Galilean disciples of Jesus who would soon be sent out to preach about the coming kingdom of God. So as a therapist, I read this, and my first inclination is to cringe just a little bit at Jesus' words, do not be anxious about your life. I know how these passages have been read by people who struggle with anxiety. Anxiety is not a choice or a feeling that can be automatically turned off with just a little insight or a little instruction. It's a clinical mental disorder of the brain Without understanding the context, a passage like this has the potential to add further anxiety to people who are already in an anxious state by piling on failure to live a faithful and victorious Christian life and then shame for being unable to just get over it and be obedient. I cringe because I know how these passages have been used by Christian leaders, life group leaders, to accuse people who are struggling with anxiety. Remember, anxiety is a clinical mental disorder of the brain, not of having, accusing them of not having enough faith, not trusting God enough, and if they would just surrender, they could live free from this anxiety. I cringe because I feel the weight of these passages, and I know the potential they have of actually making people feel worse, 
people who are in a fight for their very minds. But here is my message to those of you who in this room, and I know there are those of you in this room who are, are, are fitting this. I, I know because in a group this size, there has to be a lot of anxiety here. That's, that's the world we live in. It's the water that we swim in right now. Those who are struggling with the pain of anxiety, this passage of scripture wasn't written with you in mind. So take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Anxiety as a mental disorder was a rare thing in Jesus' time. It is currently, however, the number one emotional problem of our day. And it's often compounded with other emotional issues and especially depression. What I see in my office and what research supports is that the high prevalence of anxiety is caused by how our modern life is so affected by stress. We experience more stress because of the pace of life, the expectations to succeed, the overload of information, dissatisfaction, and a need to compare ourselves caused by advertisement, just to name a few causes. These were not things that the Galilean Jews of Jesus' time had to worry about. Stress not only causes ulcers, heart disease, and headaches, it also sets the stage for anxiety by wreaking havoc on our brain's biochemistry. The, the, the chemicals in our brain that our brain produces, it, it messes it all up. And I won't go into all of that, but cortisol is a part of it. So in case you're wondering, look it up. The reason we're seeing such a dramatic rise in stress disease, anxiety, and clinical depression is that we're living supersonic lives when we were designed, designed for camel and donkey travel. Our adrenaline is a continuous stream of high-octane energy that our bodies were not designed to tolerate in a sustained way. And that's causing us to feel anxious. And we have a pandemic of anxiety in our culture today. The pace of modern life is stretching us well beyond our limits. We're paying the price for it. A lot of my missionaries, the missionaries, they're not mine. The missionaries that I serve, I have this paternalistic view of my missionaries. But a lot of the missionaries that I serve, they talk about when they go overseas to these to countries, not, some of them uh, industrialized countries, not just some poor backwater third world culture. But they, they talk about how Getting out of our culture, it, it feels so much more peaceful and restful. And then coming back to America is a very stressful experience for them. The reentry hits them like a hammer. And that's what, that what I'm talking about here. So Matthew chapter 6 wasn't written with this kind of anxiety in mind. When, when Jesus said, don't be anxious, he, he wasn't speaking to people who had a context of anxiety like we do today. Does that make sense? There's another group of people that I have in mind too. That caused me to cringe a little when reading this passage. When Jesus asked, isn't life more than food and clothes? What about the poor and vulnerable for whom today's meal isn't a guarantee? Do you know that one billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day? Another three billion on less than two dollars. And 20% of people in our own country here in the U.S. live below what we term the poverty line. My wife, Kimberly, spent a semester in Calcutta, India, serving Mother Teresa's home for the dying. People were brought in each morning who had been found on the streets, left to die of disease, horrific wounds, malnutrition, and many did die, and some survived. But the daily confrontation with the most appalling forms of poverty and human injustice made reentry back to, to life in the U.S. really hard for Kimberly. When she returned, she got a job waiting tables at a restaurant to help pay for our upcoming wedding. And she got a little bit confrontational with some of the guests who were wasting food or not willing to take it home in their to-go boxes. She, <laughs> I, I just laugh thinking about some of the stories she would tell. Um, she wanted everyone to understand how their waste had implications on, her, on the experience of, of those that she had been serving. From a, a content perspective, 
The Bible actually says more about just and equitable living in regards to those who are poor and vulnerable than it does about any other form of righteous living. So to think that Jesus was being callous to the poor when he said, isn't life more than food and clothes, just doesn't hold hermeneutical weight. He was deeply concerned about the poor, the marginalized, and the vulnerable. It's just that they weren't his audience that day. So Jesus wasn't speaking to clinically anxious people, and he was not speaking to the desperately poor. To think that Jesus was offering strategies for clinical anxiety or for starving children would miserably fail to understand the context. So when someone is dealing with anxiety, we shouldn't be saying to them, well, Jesus said not to be anxious about your life. So just, you're just not trusting him enough or you're not living, you're just living in fear. When someone is desperately poor, we shouldn't be saying to them, well, Jesus said to think on the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things are going to be taken care of. So pat them on the back and send them on their way. God will take care of everything if you believe or have enough faith. This passage is not Jesus's cure for anxiety or poverty and shame on us for ever using it to make God's kingdom and his righteousness feel like an unsafe place for people. To make God feel exacting and demanding and impossible. So let me be clear. The context of Matthew 6, Jesus was speaking to an itiner- as an itinerant rabbi to his itinerant disciples. In Jesus' time, they were, there was traveling rabbis and their students, disciples, who would go from village to village teaching the Torah to spontaneous gatherings of people. It was considered an honor for those in the village with means to welcome the rabbis and their, their disciples into their homes and provide them with food, with shelter, and if necessary, if their clothes were looking a little bit worn out, to give them clothing. When Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will wear, he was talking to people who were entering into a life of ministry that was part of the expectation of their society that the community they visit would naturally provide for them in their needs. He wasn't even speaking here to people who had to labor for a day's wage. He was kind of saying, hey guys, this life of traveling ministry isn't one where you'll likely find yourselves wearing the fanciest clothes or eating like kings. If that's what you value and what you want, this might not be the life for you. But trust me, If God closes beautiful flowers who don't even last the summer as beautifully as he does, he will make sure you have clothes on your back. And if you make sure the birds have what they need to eat, you can be sure he will provide you with food. If he cares for those things, wouldn't you think he cares for you even more? Spend your emotional energy on practicing the presence of God and what he values and sharing that with others and your needs will be taken care of. So that's the context of this passage. It's a relief to know that he's not bashing anxious people or disregarding the poor, right? But if he's not speaking directly to us, does this passage have anything to say to us? I say absolutely, it does. It's a pregnant passage with kingdom implications on our lives. As I dug into it, the person of Jesus became more real to me than he's ever been before. I realized that even after 25 years of vocationally serving God and learning about Jesus, I'd only scratched the surface of who he was and what his life meant to me. I'd love to use the rest of my time with you this morning to give you a a glimpse of what I began to see in Jesus as I studied the Sermon on the Mount again. So once you get past the, the Beatitudes, Jesus seems to become very uncompromising. Be perfect, like God is perfect. It's kind of tucked casually between commands to love your enemies and give away all your money. The same kind of extremism of Jesus is found elsewhere in the Gospels. When a rich man asked Jesus, what should I do to be saved? Jesus said, give your money away. Not just 10% of it, all of it. When a disciple asked Jesus if he should forgive his brother seven times, 
Jesus said, no, not seven times, but rather 77 times. Early on in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made a statement about his purpose being not to abolish the law, but to actually fulfill it. And that causes listeners to sit up and, and take notice because the law meant a lot to them. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were in competition with one another to see how strict they could be. They had divided the Torah, which was God's law, into 613 rules, 248 commands, 365 prohibitions, and 1,521 recommendations. In order to keep from misusing God's name in vain, they even refused to pronounce it at all. And this is, to, to this context, this crowd of people, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses even that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of God. It would seem that Jesus himself set us all up to fail, wouldn't it? Here in the Sermon on the Mount, as if what the Pharisees had already done to the law of God wasn't difficult enough, Jesus made it impossible. We just can't do it. And then he charged us with the command to keep it. Has any, any one of us ever lived a life as perfect as God's? Has any of us successfully completely followed the golden rule? Does Jesus really expect me to give to every panhandler on the corner? Should I abandon my in, insistence on consumer rights and cancel my insurance policies and only trust God for my future? Should I discard my TV and my phone to avoid temptation and lust? People have tried and all have failed. How can we even respond to such impossible ideas except by living in the constant tension between our attempts to be good Christians and do what Jesus says and our utter inability to do it? Where does that leave us? I'll tell you, because I see it every day. It leaves us an anxious mess. Before my family moved to Africa, my early childhood was spent in the mountains of Western Pennsylvania. We were part of a faith community that tried to be perfect. I wasn't allowed to go fishing on Sundays because that could be misconstrued as work since some people make a living out of fishing. I'm not even joking. Uh, when I would visit my Roman Catholic grandmother and she'd give me a deck of playing cards to play solitaire with, uh, we had to get rid of them on the way home. It was an eight-hour drive. They could make it about seven of the hours away from there before we got back to home because uh, somebody might see that deck of cards and, and judge us for being gambling, for having a gateway for the, the sin of gambling, the vice of gambling. But here's what's crazier about that. Our family was considered liberal and judged as such by my grandfather's brother, whose church required women to wear long black dresses that covered their necks, wrists, and ankles. And the, the, the buns that they wore just kind of pulled their face into a tight, I felt bad for, for my aunt. <laughs> my grandfather was the pastor of our church and he was leading us all astray because he owned a TV set. People have tried for centuries to fulfill Jesus's teachings. The Sermon on the Mount did not help any of them improve in their ability to live up to God's standards for holiness. It just revealed all the ways that they could not do it. And it leaves people severe, exacting, judgmental, and constantly afraid of doing the wrong thing or being seen by others as doing the wrong thing. Has God ever seemed that way to you? Exacting, judging, demanding, uncompromising, and impossible. I want to tell you a story about a Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy strove to follow the Sermon on the Mount literally. 
His intensity caused his family to feel like victims of his quest to live a godly life. For example, after reading Jesus' command to the rich man to give away everything, Tolstoy decided to free all of his serfs, which is probably a good thing because serfs is a, was like slaves, give away his copyrights and dispose of his vast estate. He wore peasants' clothes, made his own shoes, and worked in his own fields. His wife, Sonia, felt no love from him. For all the good that he was trying to do, she didn't feel any love. He drafted rules for how to feel, rules for developing his will. More than once, he made public vows of chastity and asked to sleep in a separate bedroom from his wife. But much to his shame, Sonia's 16 pregnancies broadcast to the world that he was unable to live, even live up to half of his ideals. His wife Sonia's account of his life after his passing paints a sad picture of his attempt to live out the Sermon on the Mount. She wrote, there's little genuine warmth in him. His kindness doesn't come from his heart, but only from his principles. His biographers will tell of how he helped the laborers to carry buckets of water, but no one will ever know that he never gave his wife a moment of rest. Tolstoy's striving toward perfection never resulted in any kind of peace or serenity. Abundant life that Jesus promised us, right? His life was not abundant. Up to the moment of his death, his own journal entries spoke of failure. He was a deeply unhappy man who lived with constant anxiety about his own imperfection, and he had to have all the ropes and the, the guns in his property hidden or destroyed to resist the temptation to commit suicide. For people like Leo Tolstoy, the Sermon on the Mount and many other words of Jesus spoke does not solve your problems, didn't solve his. We like to say the gospel solves all of the world's problems, justice issues, race issues, financial issues. But if we read Jesus' words through the kind of lens that Leo Tolstoy did and how hundreds of people who come to see me in my office do, the gospel just adds a burden to life. Tolstoy's, Tolstoy fought upstream all his life and collapsed at the end from moral exhaustion instead of solving anything for himself. A biographer of Tolstoy wrote, with crystalline clarity, Tolstoy could see his own inadequacy in the light of God's ideal, but he could not take the further step of trusting God's grace to overcome that inadequacy. A countryman of Tolstoy, who was another one of the most accomplished of all Russian novelists and lived during the same time, but they never met, which is probably a good idea, was Fyodor Dostoevsky. The two never met because their lives were very, very distinct, but they wouldn't have liked each other. Dostoevsky squandered his wealth on alcohol and gambling they would not, they would just would not have got along well. But Josefsky got a lot of things wrong in his life, including being sent to Siberia, actually, for being part of a group that protested Tsar Nicholas I. He was actually sentenced to death by a firing squad. But when he and the others were standing blindfolded, just as the order ready, aim was about to be shouted out, a rider came riding in with a message to commute his sentence to, to hard, hard labor instead of death. Fyodor believed that God had given him a second chance, and he began to read the New Testament, which was the only book allowed in the prison camp where he, where he was working. And after 10 years, he emerged from exile in Siberia with an unshakable conviction that the grace of Jesus was going to be central to his life. Dostoevsky's novels are some of the best descriptions of grace in the history of the world. I highly recommend them. Crime and Punishment depicts a despicable murderer, Raskinlokov, Say that five times fast. But when he encounters the, con the converted prostitute, Sonia, who follows him all the way to Siberia and leads him to redemption, Dostoevsky shows that no one is too far from grace to be brought back into the loving arms of a God who calls each of us his beloved sons and daughters. 
no matter how poorly they've lived out the Sermon on the Mount. There's always space for him. Taken together, these two Russian novelists help us to understand a central paradox in the Christian life. Tolstoy shows us that we need to look deeply inside of ourselves and recognize our own inadequacy and failure to live up to God's ideal standard of perfection. And from Dostoevsky, we learn the full extent of grace. There's only one way for us to resolve that tension between the high ideals of the words of Jesus and the grim reality of our failure to live up to them, to accept that we will never measure up and we never have to. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are judged by the righteousness of Christ who lives within us and whose spirit fills us. We are not judged by our own righteousness. When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he wasn't saying we had to be righteous. He meant seek after the righteousness his grace offers. And when we choose his kingdom, we are choosing his kingdom over the kingdom of the world. From my childhood, I learned that Christian life demanded perfection. I felt unworthy of the absolute ideals of the Sermon on the Mount. I saw it only through the lens of legalism, and I missed any notion of grace. From the Russian novelist, I have come to understand the dual message of Jesus. And when I read the Sermon on the Mount now, I see how grace pours through the entire sermon. It begins with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the meek, the blessed, they're desperate. And it moves us toward the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, deliver us from the evil one. Grace is for the desperate, the needy, the broken, those who can't make it on their own, those who can't be perfect. Grace is for people like us. Where I once had seen the Sermon on the Mount as a blueprint for human behavior that no one could possibly follow, I see it now as a message of grace. Jesus didn't give us these words to burden us with what we couldn't possibly succeed in. He gave them to us to tell us what God is like. The character of God is the subtext of the Sermon on the Mount. Why should we love our our enemies? Because God loves them first. Because God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good alike. Why should, we, why should we walk toward perfection? Because God himself is perfect. Why store up treasures in heaven? Because our Father lives there and he will lavishly reward us. Why live justly? Because justice and righteousness are both part of who God is. Why live without fear and worry? Because the same God who clothes the lilies and the grass of the fields has promised to take care of us. Why pray and ask him for what we need? Because of an earthly father who gives his son bread and fish, how much more will the Father in heaven give good gifts? The people who come into my office despairing and anxious over their failure to do everything right, to break that tenacious sin in their lives, they are often looking for what they have to do to get it right. Silas, please tell me what I have to do next. Give me that list of steps that I can break, take to break free from pornography. Tell me what I need to practice to break free from this constant cycling thoughts of fear. Tell me what to do. The worst tragedy would be for me to turn this message of Jesus into another form of legalism, of striving, of doing. In fact, these words of Jesus in Matthew 6 should put an end to all striving. I'm not saying that the standards of God aren't strict. They are. In fact, Jesus said himself that if we thought the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were strict, they, in fact, aren't strict enough. But that's not something that we need to worry about. The Sermon on the Mount proves that all of us stand before God on level ground. Murderers, temper throwers, pornography addicts, adulterers, coveters, thieves, those who are deeply anxious and deeply depressed. We're all desperate, and that, in fact, is the only appropriate state of a human being who wants to know God. Having all fallen short of God's perfection, 
We have nowhere else to land but in the loving arms of a God's infinite grace. So would the band come up and and join me on the stage? And uh, can the prayer team come forward? I'd like to end with a a time to respond. There are some of you here today, I know, because I am a clinical uh, counselor who knows that anxiety is so prevalent. It's something that we all deal with in our, our culture. So I know there are some of you here today who really love Jesus, but because of the messages you've heard growing up, you don't feel like you're good enough for God. For some of you, when you read the Bible, things like the Sermon on the Mount, it causes you to feel anxiety because you know you can't live up to that standard of God. You're just not good enough. Your house isn't good enough for him, and you want to go out there and gather all the things you can to... It was the perfect word this morning. For some of you, and uh, like, you're like Tolstoy, trying to do the right things, but it, it seems to fall short every time, and you're just tired You're so tired of trying. I used to have a picture in my mind of all of my failures and my imperfections, like a big pile that was separating me from getting to Jesus. And then one day, Jesus showed me a different picture. It was still that pile of imperfections and failures, but instead of Jesus being on the other side, waiting for me to get it figured out until I could get to him, he was standing next to me with his arm around me. He was saying he could also see that pile. Yeah, I see it. I'm not oblivious to it. We're going to deal with that. Don't be anxious about it. I'm going to help you work it out and grow and mature and become more and more like me. So if you need Jesus to change that picture in your mind, I urge you right now, just begin to come forward and pray with the the prayer ministry teams. There's grace for you and he's ready to give it. And I also want to urge those of you who struggle with anxiety, come forward and maybe you haven't slept well in a long time because you can't turn your mind off at night and you're exhausted. Maybe you're having trouble being in groups of people and you hate how much you miss out by feeling overwhelmed by your anxiety. Maybe you struggle with letting go of control, but you're worn out just trying to hold it all together. God sees you and he knows how you feel and he wants to meet with you in this this place right now. So come forward, come receive the grace that the Lord has for you. He's got open arms and he just wants to meet with you right now.